This is Ari Koretsky, and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. And we are back with another fabulous episode of Jews You Should Know. This week, Michal Ashman. Michal is an exceptionally accomplished professional who spent years working at Facebook, now Meta, and currently works for TikTok. She has spent a great deal of time in the area of leadership development, really helping to craft meaningful, healthy, and growth-oriented corporate life for thousands of employees. In the process thereof, she came to write a very important book about her own experiences autobiographically and what she believes can help many people in a very anxiety-prone world. Her recent book is called What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? And it beautifully utilizes ancient Jewish wisdom to tackle the concept of anxiety and how it holds us back in so many ways. Very excited to bring this conversation with Michal, which really focuses on the book and on her own journey to achieving and promoting mental health. And speaking of social media, a reminder, as always, to follow us at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully on Instagram and Facebook. Jews You Should Know with the letter U on Twitter. Comments or questions to Jews You Should Know at gmail.com. Please subscribe or follow wherever you may be listening, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, on whatever platform you are consuming your podcast. Spread the word as well to friends and family so that we can continue to grow this Jews You Should Know community. And now to our conversation with corporate executive and author of What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid, Michal Ashman. We are here with Michal Ashman, the global head of culture at TikTok, someone who is uh, deeply ensconced in the world of uh, corporate, I would say America, but corporate, the global corporate culture, and someone who's written a fabulous book, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid. How are you today, Michal? Yeah, very good. Thank you. How are you? Doing wonderful, doing wonderful. So, Michal, let's take it from the top. Obviously, we hear an accent, which is not uh, Brooklyn or uh, Los Angeles. So, where are you from originally? I'm from Tel Aviv, from Israel. Wow, now that sounds like a uh, a British accent, though. Yeah, oh, well, I've been living in London uh, for nearly 20 years, but originally from Tel Aviv. Fantastic. So, tell us a little bit about your upbringing. What was your life like in Tel Aviv? Were your parents there for many years? How how long had your family been there? Yeah, no, I've I've been. Uh, we're we're Israeli, born in uh, in Tel Aviv, raised in Tel Aviv. Uh, we did live in the states for a few years, but I served in the military in Israel. I was an officer, and uh, yeah, later in life moved to Europe. And uh, my my upbringing was like North Tel Aviv. I uh, don't like using kind of descriptions too much, but I guess it was like a secular upbringing uh, environment. And so did uh, the Judaism play any role as you were growing up? Or was it really that, I guess, stereotypical, as you said, North Tel Aviv type of upbringing? Yeah, well, obviously, I was very clear about my Jewish identity. I think, you know, Israel is very uh, unique in that sense. We were always very uh, respectful of uh, our heritage Jewish heritage, as well as um, my grandparents from both sides, were Holocaust survivors. So the kind of home environment 
was very much influenced by the Shoah, the Holocaust, because my grandparents were, as I said, survivors and very much affected, of course, by what happened. They lost their loved ones. And I guess in a way, it was quite a post-traumatic kind of home environment. Uh, in that sense, we lived with my my mother's parents, my Taftahana and Saba Arya and my Saftahana survived the Holocaust. She jumped off the train that was on the way to Auschwitz and she wow. uh, was shot at and she lost her parents and her brother and her sister. Only one of her brothers survived and she was very much post-traumatized and she used to scream at night. In Yiddish, uh, mentioning my name, which later on my mom explained that she was just afraid that the Nazis would come again and and, and get me her her first granddaughter. Um, she loved me so much, and and I I loved her so so much. And with all good intent, she was keen on preparing me for the next horrible thing that would happen. And we used to hide tuna cans in the attic, and I share in the book how she kind of force-fed me chicken soup, which I can't smell or eat because she wanted me to be stronger and fuller for when the next horrible thing happens so I can survive a few more days. So so that was the real environment that I was growing up into. It was also sunny and beautiful and warm, as it is in Tel Aviv. But at home, it was quite, it was quite sad. That is really, uh, that's something that Certainly, uh, sounds like it could be traumatizing. So, uh, I mean, I imagine that's something that's stuck with you until today in terms of just having that voice, you know, the, the anxieties and those fears. That must be something that, that stuck with you. Yeah. I think, I think there's so many people that grew up in a similar environment, uh, in different places in the world. I mean, my grandparents decided to move to, uh, when then became, uh, eventually Israel, the state of Israel, but other people escaped to other places from Europe, from Poland and Germany and, and other European countries post surviving. And there's, I guess, hundreds of thousands of families, if not more than that they grew up with that experience. I just think we kind of accepted that that's normal. It took me many, many years to realize that this constant fear of the Nazis coming, this constant fear of something horrible happening, it's actually not normal. One shouldn't live in such a sense of immediate fear. But when I was a child, that's the only thing I knew. I grew up to hearing those screams at night. I, I thought that was normal life. In the book, I, I share those experiences in more detail, as well as other experiences. My father had a very interesting profession. He still has. He now has retired, but he was the head forensic pathologist of Israel for many years. And in times of terror attacks, and you know, Israel is a is a very unique place. For me, death was just life, I guess, and that caused me to be, I think, quite a fearful, sad girl inside. But on the outside, I pretended like everything was perfect because I wanted my grandparents to be happy and I wanted it to be kind of worth their survival. So I always had a smile on my face and I was always positive and good student and doing my best at school and in the army and in every place I belonged to because I wanted everyone to be proud of me. And eventually at some stage, I realized I couldn't live like that anymore because there was a big gap between the persona that I presented to the world, to what I was really feeling inside, which is fear and, and anxiety. Yeah, that's very heavy, especially living, living with a father who's this 
I guess, undertaker, so to speak, or this someone who's investigating death all the time. So growing up, you you must have had some sort of early aspirations of what you wanted to do. Did you feel like you wanted to escape kind of that very dark uh, environment in a certain way, or at least psychologically? How did you imagine you would break out of that? And, and what would you do as you became older? So I was trying to kind of persevere and, as I mentioned, kind of carry on with life and be really effective and productive. And uh, of course, you pay a price. By the way, many people that suffer from anxiety, they're actually highly productive and functional. And that's why often people just don't know that people are suffering from inside because they feel like this urge to kind of carry on and be very productive and for no one to know what's going on uh, within themselves. But at some point, uh, I, I was trying to deal with my anxiety. Things became even more difficult when I became a parent. You know, ev everything when, you, when you're a parent can be very kind of joyful and, and wonderful, but it can also be overwhelming and, and scary. And for someone that suffers anxiety, making decisions about children, what they can do, can they go to a play date? Can they go to a school trip? Suddenly, these decisions to someone who doesn't suffer from anxiety, they can seem like really easy decisions. But for someone that is suffering from anxiety, it feels like you're going to decide your huge decisions about what's going to happen with your child's life. So as my family grew and I had, thank God, more children, I felt like just life became more scary, more overwhelming. And I was still in positions at, at workplaces and kind of very responsible for work, for family. And at some point I felt like it was too much. And I went to therapy. I tried to do different things to, to help myself heal, to find a balance. But therapy, for example, it, it helped, but it, it helped kind of a, until a limited stage. I, I felt at some point that I was kind of growing my awareness, understanding a bit more potentially why these fears uh, are being felt by me and where do they come from. But I found it hard to find solutions. And it was only probably around the age of 38, 39, that I uh, made this discovery that I share about in, in my book. And that discovery was that there is a Jewish psychology. Probably using the word psychology isn't accurate because psychology is a more later science. The Torah, the Jewish wisdom has been here way before Sigmund Freud. But I discovered that within Judaism, there is a wisdom that is helping for the soul, for the psyche, for these life challenges. And, and that's where um, my healing started. I want to just rewind just a little bit before you were growing up in Israel. Did you go to the army? Did you start working? Like, when did you end up, you know, leaving Israel at some point? So I went to the army for three years. Yeah, I served in the army. I was an officer. And then after that, I went to university in, in Israel and I did a couple of degrees. So first degree, second degree. So yeah, I started working in the area of leadership development, which is a big passion of mine. And yeah, carried on life, got married, did all sorts of things, but inside was still very much suffering from, from that anxiety that I described. What do you think was driving you towards leadership development specifically as a young person? Was that a function in some way or connected to this overwhelming anxiety that had played such a prominent role in your early life? I think I found myself in a leadership position in the army. I was leading hundreds of women, kind of newly recruited to the army. 
training them how to become soldiers, explaining to them the IDF's values. And being an 18-year-old doing that, I still had braces on my teeth, right? These are like, <laughs> n- now when I look back, I was like, okay, can't believe I, I did that. But when you're in it, uh, you know, you really have to go with it. And it was a lot of, a huge amount of responsibility for a very young person. And in the army, I learned about what great leadership looks like through some amazing women that I served with. And, and I learned what less great leadership could look like through some of my less amazing moments myself as a leader when I was, you know, making mistakes or not showing enough empathy or, you know, different things that I did probably under pressure. So I, I kind of was fascinated by the fact that we each have a potential to be a leader, but it comes with a huge amount of responsibility. And I was also fascinated by the fact that I observed people that joined the army with me and grew to kind of become leaders. My best friends, we joined the army when we were 18 and we finished, we probably were about together for about three years. And who they were in the beginning and who they were at the end of those three years are the same essence, the same DNA, but just learned so many new skills and behaviors and self-awareness. And I, I fell in love with this this idea of, of leadership. What were some of the salient qualities that you really appreciated in the great leaders that you saw early in the army? Like, How did you distinguish and, and take note that this woman is an excellent leader? She's someone that I'd like to emulate. I really love the combination of empathy and vulnerability and commitment and honesty. I served with so many incredible women, uh, and I say women because I miss, mainly served with women that displayed those attributes. And once you have this mix of kind of strength and clarity and focus, as well as vulnerability and empathy, it's extremely powerful and very meaningful. And I also found myself following with more engagement those leaders that brought meaning into their leadership and explained and took the people through a journey rather than just said, uh, you know, give give commands. The easiest thing is to command when you're in the army. Uh, You have the ranks, but I much prefer leaders that inspire. So it sounds like it was much more of people that treated others with a certain humanity and weren't there to lord over others, but were there kind of with them in the trenches, so to speak, in the experience. Yeah. And also we're all about like learning together and growing, you, you know, you, you're taken kind of away from your home environment. You're used to being at home with your parents and with your siblings. And, you know, then suddenly you're like not, and your friends become your family for however long you serve. So, you know, it's, it's your family, it's your everything. You want it to be a positive experience. So I think if you inject meaning and inspiration and empathy and love, everyone's more connected, happier, and will probably bring more from within themselves to the whole effort. I just learned that that's, in my opinion, the more effective way. So at what point did you end up leaving Israel? Because you said you you have been abroad now for 20 years. Did you leave because of work or did you get married? What, like, what happened in your life that you end up shifting your location and you know where you were operating? Yeah, well, we left Israel towards our late 20s, my husband and I, and we left because we wanted a new experience. 
both of us grew up in Israel uh, for most of our lives. And uh, we went to university there. And we were like, we want to see something else. We want to have a different, a new, fresh experience. And we want to continue studying. So both of us uh, were keen to move to, to London, to the UK. And we continued uh, studying here in London. And we started working here. And we worked hard and we studied hard. Uh, maybe we partied hard. I can't remember. This was almost <laughs> 20 years ago. Hopefully we did. Not, not um, too hard, I'm sure. Yeah, we, we, yeah, I'm not sure. And yeah, and we've been here for almost 20 years since. And throughout this whole period, and certainly when you were in the army, I imagine that your Jewish practice was similar to how it had been growing up. So at some point, what shifted that your own Jewish identity began to develop? I think it was, I started to be curious about Judaism at around my late 30s when I was not feeling fantastic inside, more on the mental health side. And as I mentioned, I went to therapy and I did like other things that I thought would help me heal. And then at some stage, I was like, wait, maybe I'm looking for all sorts of solutions, like everywhere and but my own uh, heritage my own identity or at least part of my identity and if you want you want to hear more about how i kind of almost discovered the jewish wisdom you'll you'll have to read it in the book but like the short <laughs> version <would> is <laughs> uh, the short version is that i i made this discovery that judaism wasn't just about what people wear or what they're allowed to eat or not allowed to eat i mean like kosher non-kosher or I realized that there's a spiritual Judaism, which I truly had no idea existed. And I know it might sound odd, like growing up in Israel, but it, I just had no access to it. I obviously, I knew about the holidays, about the Chagim, the high holidays. You know, we, we, of course, sat together, the whole family for Pesach, and we read the Haggadah, but I, I never looked to find the meaning behind those events, those moments. We didn't light Shabbat candles. We never did made kiddush. We, we we didn't spend time at home thinking about what it could mean to us more spiritually, being Jewish or connected to Judaism. And then later on, I realized that there was and there is a Jewish wisdom, and that it's so brilliant because it's as relevant and as needed in our lives today as it was three thousand years ago. Because people might think, oh, only now people are suffering more from depression or anxiety or feeling feelings like jealousy or people have always felt those feelings from the very beginning and the torah and other holy script they have answers for that and I, I always assumed we were supposed to be perfect and if you get things wrong you're like you know it's bad and you're and actually i realized that judaism is all about learning from mistakes and that we were never supposed to be perfect Throughout our lives, we try to perfect or improve ourselves, but not from the assumption that we should be perfect, but more from the assumption that we should try to improve and grow. And that's a very different outlook to life. One is about you have to be perfect. You can make no mistakes, which can cause a lot of anxiety and fear. The other outlook, the more one that I would like to adopt now, is you're bound to make mistakes learn from those mistakes, try to make new ones, not the same old ones again and again, and know that just making or getting something wrong is an opportunity for getting it right next time. And that that is a much more positive outlook to life. 
Were there any specific teachings that grabbed you as, wow, this is like an aha moment. I had no idea this existed in Judaism or this really shifted your paradigm when you first encountered it. Yeah, I love Hasidut. So Hasidic kind of teaching, specifically within Hasidut, I like the Lubavitcher Rebbe, the uh, Chabad teaching. The reason I like it so much is it because it starts from the soul, from the fact that we have all of us, everyone, every human has a unique godly soul and that we're here to do something meaningful and that each soul is unique and each soul arrived to this world to do something. There is a beautiful Hasidic saying that says, the day you were born was the day that the world was missing you. And in Hasidut communities, people often kind of remind their children of of that saying on their birthdays. I, I try to remind myself this every time I need a reminder that the day that I was born and my kids were born were the days that the world was missing, you know, us exactly. And that we each have a role to play here. Like the world is not complete without you, Rabbi Ari, right? So it just helps you speaking of leadership. You realize I'm here to do something. I'm here to do something. I have a role to play. And by the way, not just for myself, not just for my success or my satisfaction and my growth, but for the world's success and growth and satisfaction and fulfillment and for the community around me. So this kind of mindset that you're here to be and do something, it should make you feel stronger. And it should also make you feel potentially that you're needed. You're needed, not just for yourself, but also for the world. And suddenly you, you feel like you have this obligation, but also this opportunity to be and do something meaningful. And sometimes when we fall into the bit of depression and sadness and like this blues, you know, oh, you know, why am I here? What, what am I here to do? And often we look just at ourselves. It's an invitation to say, okay, what, what am I here? Not just for me, but for others. It service as a way to draw you out of that self-absorbed depression or anxiety. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and listen, it's, it's, we have to be very careful and I am very careful and thoughtful. Hopefully when I say these things, everyone has their own life experiences and their own difficulties. And I would never in a million years suggest that Jewish wisdom should be, um, you know, replacing any other treatment. You know, this is an added perspective. This could be part of what you consume, what you find inspiring to help people deal with everyday life. That was going to be a question I wanted to ask you. Are you ever uh, beset by the accusation that, you know, Judaism can sort of be this replacement for conventional treatments for anxiety, whether that's medication or psychotherapy, and actually that could be dangerous, you know, because uh, Judaism has to be layered on top of an already sort of healthy, you know, psychological spirit. I know that that's something that many people are very sensitive to nowadays, you know, conflating Judaism with psychotherapy or with treatments for these kinds of maladies. And at the same time, it sounds like for you, it sort of was the ultimate treatment for your anxieties when the conventional methods didn't uh, remediate them. How do you navigate that particular, call it accusation or that particular Mm -hmm. charge when in fact your own personal experience kind of belied that uh, concern. You know, I, I'm not familiar with what you mentioned. I would never ever suggest to anyone, I'm not a counselor, I'm not a doctor, 
to replace any treatment unless, you know, advised by a doctor. For me, it wasn't the ultimate solution. I just arrived to it when I was already, after 15 years in therapy and familiar with medication, I didn't stop completely anything and then kind of, you know, drastically moved into learning. I, I, I don't believe in kind of drastic change and stopping very kind of drastically and starting something new. I, I was fascinated by the fact that there is such a beautiful wisdom. I found it healing for the soul and the heart. And I, you know, really important to say if, if people are feeling, you know, difficult emotional or mental feelings, they should go and get medical advice first, you know, would be my own perspective on that. And as I said, I think it's a, it's a beautiful, potentially, if you find it relevant to you, could be an added element that you, you, you add to your life or to however you treat yourself and help yourself w- with kind of navigating life. So what made you decide to write the book? At some point, obviously, you had discovered some great gifts for yourself and you want to share them. But what was sort of the moment that precipitated you're actually putting pen to paper or uh, at least however that works on a, on a keyboard nowadays, you start sharing? I think that when I started to become curious about Jewish wisdom, and, and when I say Jewish wisdom, it doesn't mean to become religious. It's Jewish wisdom that can be consumed by anyone of any faith or any uh, belief that is just curious to learn, you know, about Judaism. When I became curious about what could Jewish wisdom mean for me in my life, I realized that most of the writings or the teachings have been done by male rabbis, and I felt that there was a not not enough, at least where I was looking, not enough uh, content uh, or books written by women or just by people that were not orthodox or, 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 or religious, like people that I could relate to more for where I was at that point. And one of the reasons I wrote the book, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid, was to give uh, hopefully access to the universal Jewish wisdom for people that just have no awareness that it could mean anything to them in their lives today, in their parenting experiences, in relationship, at work. This book is actually my mission to allow more access to Jewish wisdom to anyone and everyone that is curious about it. What was the reception like when you put this out? Did you feel like many people had kind of been waiting for this, a book like this? I've been so amazed by the positive, and not that I thought that it wouldn't be, but I wasn't expecting such a positive response. I think that one of the reasons that you know the book is, is is selling well and getting positive feedback is because it's a self-help book it's all about helping yourself you know understand yourself better your potential better your strengths better your qualities better what you're here to do in this world every chapter has at the end has like a coaching section with a number of self-coaching questions that the reader can ask themselves and write down. And there's a, it's a very kind of, you need to do the work book. I hopefully give some ideas and some guidance of how people can kind of solve for themselves. And, and I think there is an appetite for that. I think, you know, self-help books are quite popular now. People are raising their 
awareness and curiosity about how they can fulfill their potential, how they can grow and whatever they're doing in life. And the way that the book has been accepted so far is, is as a self-help book, which, which I'm very pleased with. What do you want people to take from the book? What should a person who's reading this you know, expect to experience and how can they best utilize the book to improve their lives? I think that we're all, or I shouldn't say we're all, many of us are searching. We're looking, we're searching. And I, actually, we're having, you and I are having this conversation in the month of uh, Elul, not too far from the new year. And it's a month of searching, of reflection, of preparing. And I really am a believer of if you want to live a meaningful life and if you want to be doing meaningful things, you really have to prepare for that. You have to invest in it. You have to be clear about who you are and, and what you're here to do. And I hope that the book helps people become clearer about that. I also hope that the messages in the book that are, by the way, not mine, I, I take ideas from the Torah and from different sources, as I mentioned, Hasidut, and I just kind of apply them to today's life. Uh, I share my own personal stories about challenges and le learnings that I've had in, in my career, in my relationships. And hopefully, um, just by normalizing the fact that many of us go through difficult times in life, that many of us have experienced heartbreak. One of the beautiful sayings in Hasidut is, there is nothing more complete than a broken heart. And that actually, in order to be complete, as a human, you must break. And, and I, I find that message truly inspiring because when my heart got broken, at least romantically, one very, very painful time really broke me to pieces. I thought I was going to be broken forever. I thought that no one would ever love me and then I would never find my love. And many years after I did, but it's kind of normalizing the fact that our hearts will break and unfortunately, we'll, we will break other people's hearts, metaphorically speaking, of course. And eventually, that will make us the people that we have the potential to become. Now, it's very annoying to hear that when you're going through your heartbreak. But I've had so many messages from people just kind of coming out of a heartbreak or starting to heal that they're saying that it's reassuring to hear from others that have been through difficult situations that it's going to make you who you eventually should become as a person. But life isn't easy, fortunately or unfortunately. How has writing the book changed you in, in any way? What has shifted in your own life, perhaps as a result of writing the book or in tandem with doing so, as you've you know been along your own journey and obviously working in, in high-stakes environments and having a very busy life of your own? Has this book in some way shaped your recent life experience? I think the book and the publishing of the book is bringing a lot of meaning and joy to my life, but also my family's life. Uh, we're on this journey together as a family. Writing a book initially looked like the hard part, but actually it's birthing the book mm. and getting it out there and you know, marketing it and getting it out, you know, it's, it's that, that's, I think, uh, as big as the mission of, of the writing. 
the writing of the book was quite an emotional experience. I wrote it during COVID and it was very interesting moments that I found myself within the context of being in a room for 10 days writing and going through my own motions and sharing very personal life experiences. It was a very special life experience, the writing itself. But now that it's done, it's beautiful to meet with thousands of people, either in person or via Zoom, and to hear from the tens of thousands of people that read the book and, and can see themselves in the book. And it's almost like becoming a bit of a, like a nice community of, of readers. And I feel blessed with, with this experience. Do you feel like there's another chapter, so to speak, that you haven't yet written or that you'd like to write? another project or something within this arena that you feel is a next a next venture perhaps uh, i don't know i think maybe the next stage would be to well, do you know what i don't want to say <laughs> if i say it i'll have to do it um, maybe that's a good I'm, thing i'm both <laughs> <laughs> i'm pleased with where things are at the moment and i would like to continue this beautiful journey in closing Michal, tell me about the title it's a very catchy title. What would you do if you weren't afraid? It really, I think, captures a lot. How did you come up with the title and, and what did you hope that it would encompass for people? Yeah, I worked for Facebook, now Meta, for almost seven years. And in the space of, of leadership development and coaching, management development. And what would you do if you weren't afraid as part of Facebook's company mantra internally? And I was truly inspired when I joined Facebook. Uh, now it's been almost maybe 10 years ago when I joined the company and I saw these big posters on the wall and it said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And it was an invitation and almost like an acknowledgement that we are afraid, but we shouldn't. Or there's a potential of being less afraid or not afraid. And once we unlock or we overcome that fear, there's so much creativity and there's so much potential. And I just think that asking oneself that question, what would you do if you weren't afraid? Even if you quickly answer, boom, this is kind of that thing that you could be doing, but you're not doing because you're afraid of getting it wrong, or maybe you're afraid of getting it right. And that's why I love it so much. And, and just side by side that poster in Facebook that said, what would you do if you weren't afraid? That was a poster that said, fail harder, which is kind of complementary to the idea of overcoming your fear because you will fail in life. We will fail. And at least if we fail, let's fail harder, meaning let's give it our 100%. Let's try our best. Let's channel all efforts. And if we fail, at least we know that we failed whilst trying. And then we will learn from that failure and then try again in a slightly different way. And that's why I called the book, What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? Did you have to get permission to use the phrase? Is that like a trademarked? <laughs> it's not a Facebook. I, I don't think it's a Facebook <laughs> trademark. I think it's been around before uh, before Meta. <laughs> well, it's uh, it's wonderful to get a little bit of, of Meta understanding of your own process, Michal, and where you came from writing this this wonderful book that I think can really help a great deal of people I think it has a, a tremendous amount of credibility as well. Coming from someone who has been through a leadership role in the army and been through leadership roles and in the global corporate world, I, I think people can look at that and say, you know, this is someone who has achieved a tremendous amount. And despite all you talk about with anxiety, obviously it hasn't hindered you in any way from, from achieving great things. 
And nevertheless, you're willing to be vulnerable enough and open enough to share that that still comes with challenges and difficulties and that those are worth looking at and worth addressing and that there's a way within our tradition to start to do that. So thank you so much for sharing. And where can uh, people learn more about the book and of course, order it? Yeah, well, it's everywhere, uh, hopefully, uh, to find. Maybe first place to go could be Amazon, but Barnes & Noble, different bookstores. What would you do if you weren't afraid? And we have a podcast with the same name that just goes a bit deeper into people's experiences, overcoming fear and anxiety. We just, again, wanted to mention that I am not a doctor nor a counselor, and people should consider this wisdom as an add-on to whatever they're doing and taking in order to, to help themselves in life. Michal Ashbin, author of What Would You Do If You Weren't Afraid? Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much, Rabbi Ari. It was a pleasure. Appreciate it. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at JewsYouShouldKnow. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash JewsYouShouldKnow. Finally, If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews you should know.